Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. As listeners to our morning of conversation know, each and every week I have the luxury and joy of interviewing a guest to discuss the weekly portion known in Hebrew as Parashah that is read in synagogues throughout the Jewish world. This week, The community will be reading from the book of Exodus, uh, beginning with chapter 30, verse 11, and continuing through chapter 34. In Hebrew, the parashah portion is known as kitisah. Let me offer an overview of the parashah and then turn to our guests for conversation. Our parasha begins with another census of the Israelites uh, being taken. Everyone entered into the record are told to contribute exactly half shekel of silver to the sanctuary. Instructions are also given regarding the making of the sanctuary's water basin, anointing oil, and incense. The text tells us that wise-hearted artisans— Bitzalel and Ohaleav are placed in charge of the sanctuary's construction, and the people are once again commanded to keep the Shabbat. The people are encamped at the base of Mount Sinai. When Moses does not return when expected from Mount Sinai, the people make a golden calf and worship it. God proposes to destroy the entire nation but Moses intercedes on their behalf. Moses descends from the mountain carrying the tablets of the testimony, engraved with the Aserita Debrot, the Ten Commandments. Seeing the people dancing around the calf, he breaks the tablets, then destroys the golden calf and has the primary culprits put to death. He then returns to God to say, If you do not forgive them, block me out from the book that you have written. God forgives, but says that the effect of their sin will be felt for many generations. At first, God proposes to send his angel along with them on their journey, but Moses insists that God himself must accompany the people to the promised land. The text continues and tells us that Moses now, back on Mount Sinai, prepares a new set of tablets and ascends the mountain where God reinscribes the covenant on these second tablets. On the mountain, Moses is also granted a vision of what is called in the text the 13 attributes of mercy. So radiant is Moses upon his experience that his face is lit up upon his return and the text tells us that he must cover it with a veil, which he removes only to speak with God and to teach his laws to the people. From the very beginning to the very end, this is a parasha that calls out for conversation and calls out for interpretation. With me this morning 
is one of Canada's foremost rabbis. Rabbi Philip Bregman was the spiritual leader of Temple Shalom in Vancouver for over 30 years. He retired in 2013 to become Temple Shalom's uh, rabbi emeritus. Now he serves as interfaith liaison under the auspices of the Jewish Federation of Greater Vancouver and the Rabbinical Association of Vancouver. While serving as Temple Shalom's rabbi, he developed an intense commitment to community building, and he was part of the founding of the Rabbinical Association of Vancouver. He was instrumental in establishing Talmud Torah and the Supplementary Jewish High School of Vancouver, and worked extensively with interfaith groups. Rabbi Bregman was instrumental in converting Temple Shalom from a small group of 70 families to over 700 member families. And he has inspired six children of the congregation to enter their rabbinate. It is a great joy to uh, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts uh, a Canadian by birth and a Canadian throughout his entire career, except for a brief mistake and sojourn in New Rochelle, New York, Rabbi Philip Bregman. Welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Thank you. A Have pleasure. you recovered I, from I your uh, journey in New Rochelle after 30-odd uh, years ago? Almost 40. Um, well, there's a group of us. There's, yeah, it's a 41. I've been here 41 years now. Uh, there's a group of us that uh, we have t shirts that says, I survived. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in any event, but uh, listen, if it wasn't for New Rochelle, I wouldn't have met uh, my wife, Kathy, so, uh, uh, who's a New Yorker and uh, ultimately brought her to the promised land. So there so, it was uh, Bashert that you go there. It was Bashert. It was Bashert. Yes. So, Rabbi yes. Bregman, I want to begin um, <clears throat> right at the beginning of our parasha. I'm going to read it for our listeners. We're in uh, Exodus, beginning in chapter 30, verse 11. Vayidaber Adonai el Moshe lemor. And the Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, When you take a census of the Israelite people according to their enrollment, each shall pay the Lord a ransom for himself on being enrolled, that no plague may come upon them through their being enrolled. This is what everyone who has entered into the record shall pay, a half shekel by the sanctuary weight, a half shekel as an offering to God. This isn't the first census in the Torah. It's not the first time the Israelites um, have been counted, but it feels like it is significantly different than other kinds of counting. How do you read these verses? Well, uh, first of all, um, I, I want to go to uh, the, this notion of what it says. The English says, take a census, but that's not exactly what the Hebrew says. And in fact, the, the entire uh, name of this parasha, Kitisa, what it says is when you lift up, and it says, Kitisa et Rosh B'nai Yisrael, the way a census was taken was not by simply going one, two, three, four, but literally to take your finger, 
put it under the chin of the individual and to lift their head up so that you could look into their eyes, thereby looking into their souls, and then make a determination. Not only does this person count, but more importantly, can we count on this person? You see, we are now in the Bamidbar. We're in the wilderness. We're a motley group, uh, an Aragrov, a mixed multitude of all sorts of individuals, not just Hebrews. We're coming out of a, a sense of, of, of a slavery and so on. We are going to be facing all sorts of encounters that will not be peaceful. We are going to be traversing in land that people do not want us to traverse. We are going to be crossing into, quote, their territory. They're going to look at us not only as an enemy, but they're going to also look at us as a phenomenal opportunity to plunder what we have. And it says that we took stuff out of Egypt. The Egyptians even gave us stuff to get rid of us. So here, Moses, and let's understand that the first 40 years of his life, he was a prince in Egypt. He would have seen what was going on in the palace in terms of military operations, uh, whether it be defensive or more to the point offensive. Um, and then he's in the wilderness, and he's going to see what goes on in the wilderness under the auspices of his uh, father-in-law, Yitro. And he knows from these 80 years of experience before he becomes this tour leader for the next 40 years of his life, that there are great dangers out there. How are his people going to handle it? Can we count on these people? Are they going to be there? So he needs to take this census to know what does he have? Who's there to protect the people? Who's there to defend the people? So, in effect, now, it's more than accounting. It's an opportunity of affirmation. Absolutely. Moses is, um, and, and one could even suggest that even though the people of Israel have stood at Mount Sinai and experienced the revelation earlier in the book um, of Exodus in a chronological sense, um, what were the people really prepared to commit themselves individually um, they had done so in a group, and now as you read the text for our listeners and help them with the Hebrew, this is their personal affirmation. Uh, now, in lots of churches and synagogues, there are moments of affirmation called confirmation. Um, people sometimes are expected um, to raise their head and affirm their personal commitment to the purposes of the congregation, to the purposes of the faith. Um, I guess you're suggesting that perhaps this was the first moment of individual uh, confirmation, um, because you indicate that, and so lovingly, that Moses raised their heads to look them in their eyes, and only after that did they pay the shekel. Were, were they there? In what way were they truly there? Um, uh, so it raises a couple of issues for me. 
Uh, first of all, who do we count on in our lives? And who can we count on in our lives? Um, you know, there, there, there are different ways and different factors. And, and, and for example, you go into a grocery store. You're counting on the fact that the grocery store <clears throat> is going to have something to sell, which, by the way, is becoming more and more difficult these days because of, of not only COVID, but because of uh, transportation lines being broken and, and all sorts of things. And also that the food that they're going to sell you, you're counting on it that it's going to be uh, edible. It's going to be fresh. It's a trust. Okay, that's one way. I'm sorry? It's a trust relationship. It is a trust relationship. Okay, and there and 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 God created lawyers because that trust is often broken, and and uh, you know we have the wonderful opportunity then to sue each other into oblivion, um, but it is a trust. You we have this trust all the time. Now that's a certain level of I'm counting on this. I go up to a gas pump, even though the they're gouging us now like crazy, and we have some of the uh, highest uh, gas prices in Canada at one point. $82 a liter, whatever. But we're, we, we, we say that when we put our credit card in, we're, we're, we have a trust, we're, we're expecting and counting on the fact that there's going to be some gas that comes out of the pump. There's all sorts of these things. That's on one level. But on a, and, and, and then we have this trust in schools that uh, they're going to uh, take care of our children. Well, we know that's not always the case. That they're going to teach our children. Well, that's not always the case. We have all sorts of things that we count on with regard to government. I'm not going to get into that, uh, uh, especially with you guys sitting in Ottawa, throwing our money left, right, and center down a big hole. But um, what are the, who are the people that we really can count on in life? And I suspect that it, it really comes down to um, family. But it also comes down to oneself. Can you count on yourself? Can you, will you be there for yourself? And to that effect, one of the great rabbis of our tradition, uh, uh, Hillel the Elder, said it. If I am not for myself, who will be for me? Yet if I'm for myself only, what am I? And if not now, when? Can I count on myself? So. Then we, then the whole aspect, and I just want to, there's, there's one other thing about counting on people. I remember the very first time that I went to Yad Vashem, and that uh, was with you. And now I don't know if that was your first time in Israel, but in 1970, that was my first time in Israel when we were first rabbinic students, our first year. Just uh, let me make sure that our listeners know that Yad Vashem is the um, national memorial to um, the victims of the Shoah, the victims of the Holocaust, um, a memorial and a historical re reckoning of those who died at the hands of um, the Nazis in the Second World War, six million Jews, uh, of that a million children, and uh, a million and a half of other nationalities and uh, perspectives, uh, religious perspectives, um, so it is a significant, um, monument and a journey there is an emotionally wrenching journey. Sorry, I want to make and sure our listeners. Thank you. Thank you. And every foreign diplomat 
that comes to Israel must, in fact, uh, is taken to Yad Vashem, uh, whether they're coming in as ambassadors or they're coming in as statesmen, whatever it is. In any event, in the old Yad Vashem, and the, the same location, but uh, there's a new building and everything else. But when you first walk in, there's this avenue of the righteous. Trees have been planted in honor of individuals, non-Jews, who saved Jewish lives. And I believe that when we first went there in 1970, the figure that was given was somewhere around 14 or 15,000 uh, trees. And I thought to myself, that's it? There were only 14 or 15,000 individuals in, in Europe that were willing to save Jewish lives? Well, you have to understand that I was asking that from a pretty naive and arrogant point of view. Years later, and I've gone back to Israel dozens of times, but the last time I went there, I believe the figure was up to about 27,000 or maybe just under 28 right now that has in fact been recognized. And now my statement is, oh my God, there were actually 28,000 people in the world that were willing to put not only their lives, but the lives of their family and children at risk. Would I ever do that? My God, talk about counting on somebody, about have them, having, uh, having them hide uh, Jews in their barns, under their beds, whatever. And if they were caught, uh, they would immediately be executed along with the Jews. So I want to use so, your story to segue to what happens at the end of the parasha, because it seems to move um, in a totally different direction. You have uh, lovingly and with great sensitivity explained to our listeners this notion of saw, the raising of the head, of identifying yourself as one who can be counted on. But the parasha takes a, um, a strange turn in that the people whose heads have been raised and who've paid a half shekel perhaps not everyone, but all of those whose heads have been raised and who have been looked in the eye by Moses, then go on to build a golden calf. Okay. And the golden calf is uh, traditionally seen by the commentators as the uh, most significant sin of that generation and uh, is interpreted later, of course, to be reflective of all those uh, heretical sins that Jews might be guilty of throughout the ages. Uh, what happens between the beginning of the parasha and the end of the parasha? Okay, what happens is life. You see, one of the reasons that I absolutely love and adore reading and studying Torah is that for me, it really represents a window into the reality of human existence. Let's understand something. Before we arrive at Sinai, our experience with this God has been God does something, shows power, wow, boom. We have the, uh, the Makot, we have the plagues, okay, wow. Then we get to the Yam Suf, the Sea of Reeds, wow. Now we're at this mountain. And this guy, uh, Moshe, if you knew him personally, um, has gone up the mountain and today's new, where is he? What's happening? 
they're used to, with this God, a certain instant gratification. Okay? Uh, they need the plagues, they happen. They need the seed to split, that happens. Now they're standing there going, what's going on? Also understand something else. These people who have been living in, in Egypt for generations have not only been under the influence of, of uh, Egyptian culture, traditions, religion, uh, uh, their, 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 the, uh, the statues, the idols, and everything else, but they also understood that there are many, many gods because there's a god of this location, a god of that location, here and here. They're still not fully convinced that the god who brought them out of Egypt is that same God in the desert, which is why, by the way, the first of the Ten Commandments says, I am the Lord of God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You know that God who did those plagues? You know that God who split the sea? Da-da, here I am. At, at, well, So you're so, reminding our listeners in this very uh, wonderful way that the Torah is a book of monolatry, not monotheism that many gods exist simultaneously in the Torah, and uh, the God of the Hebrews doesn't usually attempt to deny other gods' existence. It doesn't even attempt to deny Pharaoh's divinity, but um, seeks to identify and establish that um, the God of the Israelites is the sole God for whom the Israelites should worship. And in fact, as uh, indicated by lots of events, um, the Israelite God is not only uh, singularly committed to them, but is more powerful. And if they commit themselves to this God, the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, then their life will be uh, affirmed as part of the promised land, both physically and uh, um, spiritually. Um, you see, you see, what what we fail to realize at times, Moses's experience, especially in the second forty years of his life as a shepherd, he has these opportunities of profound communication with God out in a wilderness. And by the way, this out in the wilderness we find in Islam, we find in Christianity, we find in Buddhism, the whole idea of, of communicating with God in a wilderness is a, is a, is a uh, repeated theme within uh, Well, the metaphor uh, is also one of spiritual yearning. Right. These children of Israel have not had that experience. And so one of the things that we see with Moses time and time again is his lack of patience. Okay? And, and I understand that as, quote, a spiritual leader, that at times you become really impatient with the flock. Okay? You've had certain experiences and you think, oh, well, because you've had this, they should be there where you are. No. They're not necessarily. And it's not that I'm better. It's just that I've had that experience. They haven't. So they're now looking to try and figure out, where are we, Aaron? Where are we? And it's interesting that Aaron helps them in the building of the Ego Masicha, the molten calf. He, yes, the commentary says he, he asks for this and that. He's trying to delay in the hope that, oh, God, 
brother Moses, please come down to Spakakta Mountain already and get to us here. But the idea is that Mo- Aaron didn't seem to really have difficulty because he too uh, did not experience what Moses did in that second 40 years of, of Moses' life. But, but isn't it and interesting it, that um, the previous parshiot, the previous portions, establish the responsibility of Aaron and his sons as the Kohanim, as the high priests. And his lineage will be the priests of the tabernacle, which when they settle will be the priests of the temple. And yet he then seems to be the facilitator for this golden calf. Um, and he doesn't, at least on the surface, say uh, the text is very clear. The people saw that Moses was so long in coming down that they gathered around uh, Aaron and said to him, come make us a God who shall go before us. For that man, Moses, we do not know what happened to him. And you allude to the fact that perhaps Aaron should have said, where's your faith? This guy brought you all the way here. Um, he showed you the plagues. He showed you the splitting of the Red Sea. He gave you the manna and the quails. And so he's a little late in returning. Um, have you no faith? But he doesn't answer that. His immediate answer is, well, bring me gold, bring me silver, um, take that which is on the ears of your sons, your wives, your daughters, and all of that. And Mo, and then Aaron, the text tells us, cast the mold and make right. it into a golden calf, uh, which you might want to uh, suggest is his delaying tactics. Um, but the text doesn't read that way. So, what do we make of the text here? Is it simply um, leaving that out and allowing us to interpret Aaron's behavior? Um, is it um, indicating that uh, perhaps Aaron was a little short of faith himself, that the job of the priesthood had um, taken away from him the kind of faith necessary? to be a religious leader, that the sacrificial responsibilities no longer made him a spiritual leader, but simply made him a facilitator of uh, ritual. Look, you asked a question before. How did he get the job? Okay? Okay. He got got the job the same way that uh, Robert Kennedy got the job. Okay? (laughs) It's called nepotism. So for Canadian listeners, that may mean the same way as Justin Trudeau got his job as the son of Pierre Trudeau. No question. No question whatsoever. Uh, That, you know, name recognition, whatever. Some people may have not realized that the the old guy was dead. They thought maybe some people thought they were still voting for the old guy. But in any of Not Kennedy. I think uh, the rabbi is referring to Trudeau for Canadian listeners. Trudeau, yes, 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 yes. In any event, in any event, he gets the job, okay? And like anything else in society, we're going to learn how to do things by looking around us from other examples. 
He saw what priests were doing in Egypt. He saw what they uh, they were doing with the temples and the this and the that. And it was all based on physical props. Okay? So, was that part of his gestalt of Aaron's and thinking, you know what? You know, it, it probably wouldn't hurt to have a little, uh, you know, a little statue, uh, to have a little idol. I so, mean, that's what I grew up with, he's thinking. Now my brother is telling me we've got to do this, we're going to do that. Okay, fine. But you know what? Where's my brother? He's disappeared. So we are going to have to leave our listeners wanting more. And I encourage them to uh, open the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, and look at our parasha and discern for themselves what's Aaron's role here. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Philip Bregman, Rabbi Emeritus of Temple Shalom in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. I want to thank him for his insights and wisdom. Uh, you can find a podcast of this morning's show on iTunes or chri.ca website. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you shalom and have a good day. <laughs>